well, let's do a survey. Let's do a high fidelity prototype. Let's do all of these things. And one of the things that I've learned in my career that applies to all of product, not just experimentation, but especially experimentation is that there's never only one idea. And the first idea is probably not the best idea. And the way to get better ideas is to invite a lot of ideas from the beginning and to make it more quick so that we're not overly editing or censoring our ideas. Hello, and welcome to the Product People Podcast. Here we learn from the most amazing people in the product space for 30 minutes at a time. My name is Romoita, and today we bring you the highlights of a talk by Colleen Graneto, hosted by João Melo, product manager at Product People, and recorded live at one of our community events. Colleen Granito is a product coach and advisor with over 15 years of experience as a product manager. She launched her own small company early in her career and she spent more than six years at Airbnb working in product. In this chat, Colleen tells us about product experimentation and gives a lot of actionable advice for any product manager. At Product People, our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. We do that by doing hands-on product management work at companies of all sizes and also by sharing knowledge generously with our community of more than 20,000 product enthusiasts. To find out more about us and access our community, check our website, getproductpeople.com or head over to our YouTube, LinkedIn or Meetup pages. You can find all the links in the episode description. I'll leave you now with Colleen and Joao. I hope you enjoy this episode. At Airbnb, this is a, a quote that has kind of resonated with us. At Y Combinator, we were challenged to do things that don't scale, to start with this perfect experience for one person, then work backward and scale it to 100 who love us. When we think about this advice, you know, this isn't unique to Airbnb. Most top tech companies have some version of this, starting with the ideal outcome, the perfect experience, and working backwards, which is the essence of product management. Is you know, working towards the vision and strategy of what we want to achieve and figuring out how to do it. And what I'm here to talk to you about today is some examples for how to make this happen. But what I've learned throughout my career is the importance of experimentation and the importance of doing experimentation quickly. And I like to start us off with like lessons learned the hard way. And an example of when I wasn't doing experimentation and what I learned from it. And this is when I was actually starting my handmade jewelry business, which I had an Etsy shop for and also was doing retail and wholesale. And when I was starting this business, I you know, started with the typical thing that I had learned when I did entrepreneurship in, in business school. And you know, you, you start with building your, your business plan. And I did you know, a lot of research into the sourcing and market research. I was living in Ecuador at the time. And I had met some artisans that made this jewelry out of seeds and, you know, friends and family that came to visit were super interested in the jewelry. And so I decided to start a business around it and, you know, started with figuring out how to source it, doing all the market research, uh, figuring out what necklaces to design. And I did some surveys to figure out price points, started thinking about my business plan and analyzing like how to price it in the U.S. market. And then went about and did ever so important marketing things of figuring out my logo and my business name, making business cards and getting my the jewelry professionally photographed and doing all the marketing materials and things like that. And then went and said, okay, now I'm ready. 
now I can set up my website. And I decided to start with Etsy shop where I finally listed my products. And I was like, well, that's not enough. So I was like, I have to make my own website too, since I couldn't, you know, put as many photos or as many about me information as I wanted to. And so then I finally started selling on top of things on my Etsy shop. I started doing street fairs and festivals, you know, going to talk to different retail stores to see if they would be interested in carrying jewelry and, you know, started selling as well online through my Etsy shop. And after doing that for a while, I came back around and said and learned more about the Etsy shop and, and I saw, you know, some more traction coming there and figured out, well, there's probably some things that I can do to really optimize this. And I paid more attention into the SEO and the paid marketing on Etsy and figuring out how to optimize keywords in my listing descriptions. And through that work, I ended up, I think I like 5X the amount of sales I was getting online through my Etsy shop. And I tell this story because I spent a lot of time and energy up front. I mean, this was over the course of probably about two, three years on things that didn't matter. And if I look back on this and I say, well, what do I wish I had done? I wish I had experimented to learn a lot earlier. Because when I think about the process I followed, you know, all of this upfront work I did about the sourcing and the marketing research and the surveys and like all these things that I thought I needed to do, you know, this, the business cards that I never used, the website that I eventually deleted. And, you know, all of this, I didn't need to do. I wasted a lot of time and to be honest, a lot of money. And if I looked back, if I was looking back on it, what I would do today is I would immediately set up my Etsy shop. I would just take photos with my iPhone and get some basic photos up there, do the street fairs, do the festivals, because what I found is that that's where I actually got a chance to interact with my customers. I got a chance to see what people were interested in and what they were shopping for and get feedback live from people about, you know, what their thoughts were, what messages resonated, what styles they were looking at, and also a chance to test prices because I could easily swap out the price halfway through the day and no one really would have known the difference. And this kind of message really stuck with me. And it's been something that I've continued to learn about at Airbnb because this is typically what we do. When we think about product development, this process that I went through for my jewelry business is oftentimes how we go about making decisions around a product launch, where we start up front with the market sizing and the market analysis. We do a whole bunch of customer research. We have these prioritization frameworks that we run things through. We write these really detailed product requirements. We have our roadmaps. We do some prototypes and designs to finalize the solution. We write out all of our user stories and actually build the features. And then, we launch and we finally get in front of users. And do we get the results that we expect in the first iteration? Probably not. It's probably very similar to what happened to me with my jewelry business, where I spend all this time and energy, you know, doing a little bit research here and there, refining things, and then launch. And that's when I really start learning and then iterate on it. And if I could just do that faster and just do that first, I can move so much faster and move so much more cheaply. Now, this Etsy shop and the jewelry business has more just stayed as a side hobby and then decided to just close it down overall to free up time to focus on other things. But I learned a lot of lessons along the way. And this biggest one here was that importance of experimentation and how 
a lot of times what's stopping us from doing it is these mental roadblocks of the the safety that comes with preparing things and feeling confident and you know feeling like we actually have some productive output along the way where you know the things that we can really do to learn quickly are oftentimes really scrappy and are about in some cases getting out of our comfort zone especially when starting a business but i think the same lessons carry through with me when i'm thinking about my product as well when we say do things that don't scale it's essentially running experiments for us to figure out what actually resonates. So then we can take that and figure out how to actually give it to all of our customers in a way that scales. Our immediate reaction a lot of the times is to say, oh, this isn't possible, that this can't work. And we automatically edit things down and we get stuck with just optimizing or just taking small steps forward. But when we talk about this, do things that don't scale and experimentation, it's also a mindset shift where it's like before we edit, before we constrain, let's ask ourselves, how might this be possible or what we must believe for this to be possible? And then structure experiments to learn that and figure out what, what actually could work. And then once we land that, figure out how to scale it. And that's almost a different part of our brain of figuring out how to actually make this possible for hundreds of thousands or millions or hundreds of millions of people. And when we walk through it, you know, the example that I love to share is when I was part of the experiences business, I joined the team right about a year after public launch and we were coming out of the tail end of international expansion. And for those of you who don't know, this was Airbnb's second product where we moved into activities and things to do on top of places to stay. And you know, when I joined the team, one of the big things that we were focusing on is how we could show the unique quality of our experiences and our merchandising. Because what we noticed is that, you know, the, the things that were unique about Airbnb experiences, the fact that they were a lot smaller groups, that they were with hosts that had unique perspectives, they had insider access and expertise that wasn't coming through in our merchandising. When you pulled up different travel sites and looked at like the big red bus tours, that drive around cities and you look at Airbnb experiences, you couldn't necessarily tell how they were unique. The only major difference that popped out, to be honest, was the price. And so we were struggling with this problem. And this is an example of a perfect example of doing things that don't scale and structure and experiments. So what we did first is experiment and learn. What did we need to show in our merchandising that actually communicated the uniqueness of the experiences? And what we did was that we had Airbnb photographers. So Airbnb employees go out and shoot the footage and, you know, take a lot of photos of various hosts, like some of our top hosts leading experiences. And we had Airbnb employees, Airbnb designers create the listing pages for those selected experiences. And we used that to figure out what worked through a lot of usability study, things that we did in product as well, to figure out what about the merchandising actually helped us communicate the uniqueness of our experiences. It shows the host story and why it's unique, that insider access, that expertise. It also has a lot of footage and video showing what you do on the experience. So you see a lot of footage about what the guests are actually doing so that you can feel just from looking at the merchandising that you're already seeing a glimpse. It's like a teaser reel of what the actual experience is so that you have your expectations set of like how unique it is and what exactly you'll be doing and why this is so special. And so it took us a bit of time to do this, right? It's not like we got it right on the first try. And that's why I think a lot of people 
you know, you, you don't just run one experiment. We're running tons of experiments to figure out and learn. The other part is also figuring out how we feature different experiences. And so I'm talking about just one specific experiment here, but there was, you know, tons of different experiments that we were doing as we were thinking about merchandising comprehensively, but this was more specifically focused on the content. And after we figured out a little bit more about what that formula was for what works, that's then how we, where we moved into this different stage of, well, how do we actually scale this in the product? How do we take this formula that we figured out? It doesn't scale for us to go out and shoot all of the video and all of the photography for all, you know, at this point it was 20, 30,000 experiences that were on our platform. So we needed to find a way to actually do this with user generated content as well. And, you know, how do we actually categorize all that content that we get from the host community and automate it so that we show the content in the different ways that we figured out works in terms of how we display it to guests. So that was a separate, almost problem to solve is once we figured out what merchandising resonated, how do we actually collect and then share that merchandising at scale? And that's where we started to work things into the product where you'll see a lot of these tips and there are things that we learned about what resonated in the guidelines for how we get hosts to add their, their user-generated content. All these things started coming together. And, you know, we had, as I mentioned, tons of experiments kind of pulling together there. And the frameworks that we find really helpful that I've learned throughout my time at Airbnb are pretty simple. And it starts with this how might we question, which you might've heard before. And I think it's really great when we're thinking about setting up experiments, when we identify what we need to learn, what our assumption is, what our customer behavior is that we want to validate. I love seeing the responses to the polls there. And I would check, you know, we do experimentation across all three of those things. And oftentimes the experiments are very variable. They look very different because we're saying, how might we learn about this thing that we need to learn about in the fastest, cheapest way possible? And, you know, a lot of times we jump to what I did with my jewelry business, right? Well, let's do a survey. Let's do a high fidelity prototype. Let's do all of these things. And one of the things that I've learned in my career that applies to all of product, not just experimentation, but especially experimentation is that there's never only one idea. And the first idea is probably not the best idea. And the way to get better ideas is to invite a lot of ideas from the beginning and to make it more quick so that we're not, again, overly editing or censoring our ideas. And so one of the other frameworks that we use a lot is this concept called crazy eights, where you give everyone individually two minutes to come up with eight ideas and you just do a quick sketch or a word or whatever it is. And then everyone does a round table and has like one or two minutes to share their ideas. And that gives you a chance to start building on ideas. And if you have like five or so people you walk away with 40 different ideas potentially on how you might be able to craft an experiment. And that really pushes the creativity and the innovation where, you know, we could do things really quickly to learn a lot faster. And, and so some of it is just taking that first step to actually get started and get, you know, it doesn't have to be something really, really big that we have to learn. It's just how we learn and start collecting that information. Because when I talk about what we launched with merchandising, it was a collection of tons of different insights that came from a lot of different experiments that we ran. And we did all of this work in about four months. And so, you know, it's, it, it can happen really quickly. And a lot of the time when we follow this kind of approach that I shared before, without the experiments, it's 
taking months, if not years. You know, when I talk about my Etsy shop, that was like two or three years. Thank you so much, Colleen. How do you balance product strategy, planning, and experimentation? When to plan and when to jump into experimenting? Great question. This is a tough one. The experimentation has to happen to help you come up with the plan most of the time. And, you know, this, this gets tough. Why I say this is a tough one is because you can't always define experiments because you don't always know what it is that you need to learn when you're getting started. And so it's this little bit of like the chicken and egg thing that happens. But what I recommend in, in thinking about this, the framework I apply is thinking about how you divide up your, your roadmap in terms of, and I think about the roadmap as how you're investing your time and your people that you have on your product team. And so what we generally will do is divide up the roadmap and align at a high level of, well, we first can't forget about bugs and tech debt and infrastructure work that needs to happen. So let's make sure we carve out time for that. And then thinking about the rest of it of, okay, well, what are we really confident about in terms of things we've either experimented on previously and we've had really well refined or for various different reasons, we have these kind of large pieces of work that we're really confident about that we're ready to start building and, and building at scale and getting those on the roadmap and making sure that we leave time to actually do the discovery as well to answer those questions of, well, when we finish these things, what's coming next? And even within those things, we're still going to need to refine them further and, and break them down. And the analogy I like to give for this is thinking about your product process or like searching for gold, because what you first do is you go out and you sample areas like dirt all around to figure out which areas show high signal of actually having gold in them. And that's what we're doing when we're thinking about this process of experimentation of figuring out, well, what is it? What are these levers that we might be able to pull on our product? that are really going to get us the growth or the monetization or the engagement that we're looking for. And, you know, what we're doing there is figuring out where some of these ideas might lie. And then when we find that signal, when we find that mix of like, hey, this has a high chance of being promising, then we start going deeper. And if you know gold, you know, like the old traditional way of searching for gold is dumping a whole bunch of that dirt in a sieve and then shaking it with water. And all of the dirt's going to fall out and the gold stays in the net. And that's really what we're thinking about with product discovery is searching for those gold nuggets in terms of those big things that we know with confidence are going to have the impact that we expect on our product. And those are the big things that I'm talking about that we want to make sure we set aside time on our roadmap for. But we also need to set aside time for that process, that process of sampling the dirt, that process of putting a bunch of dirt in a sieve and shaking it with water actually figure out what those things are that are going to have promise in terms of the goals that we have for our product, whether it's growth goals, monetization goals, or, or whatnot that are going to cascade it through the organization. So, you know, this may vary depending on where the product is in its life cycle. If you're a very early product, you're going to have to do a lot more experimentation and learning because you have a lot more things that you don't know. If you're a later stage product that's more mature, it's not that you know everything though, because your customers are changing, your product is changing, but maybe it's a little bit less because you, you do have a little bit more certainty and a little bit more data, more easily accessible around things. So another question is, how do you think about testing small increments versus taking larger and bolder bets? 
I wouldn't think about it as the size of the bets you're placing, but more about de-risking those bets and shaping them before you pump all this time and money into them. And, you know, that's, that's the lesson. I actually keep the business cards from my company in my office for that reason, because I printed all these business cards with my logo and my company name and all this stuff, which is a complete waste of time and a complete waste of money. And it's that reminder of, it felt like I was doing something. It gave me like comfort, but I can get the same amount of comfort of learning something, right? Just because it's not an actual output, but it's a learning or an insight. And a lot of times it's actually even more productive than, you know, a, a big kind of material output that you can see being realized. And so again, it's not about not placing big bets. It's about thinking about how you can de-risk those or shape them to be more successful. Right. How does an experimentation team look like? Like who's included in that? Same product team that you work with. So this is, that's why I say like experimentation, we want everybody as part of it. Now, when we think about experimentation, it's generally being led by design, research, and product together. But I still want engineers, especially the lead engineers participating because they bring a lot of perspectives to the table, different things that we could try, even though different functions might be leading different stages. It doesn't mean that there's not active participation from other functions. So an experimentation can also include business stakeholders, not just people in the product org. So maybe marketing is working with you, maybe sales. You know, if you want to do some, like we've done some things where we are like testing things out from a marketing perspective, or, you know, when we were doing the merchandising thing, we were working really closely with our marketing teams because they were creating a lot of the creative content as were our, our creative teams. And, you know, at Airbnb, not, there isn't so much sales teams, but I can see examples where you can just craft out new positioning by doing a sales pitch slightly differently, where you're able to do really small scale things with internal teams as well, where they can actually help support outside of, you know, doing things within the product org. Great. Fantastic. So thoughts on how to test or methods to test desirability for a product on a very niche global target market. It depends on number one, what you're testing for. So that's a tough one. I, I think what I would go back to is that how might me and the crazy eights on bringing your experts who know what you're trying to learn and who know your product together in brainstorming ways to structure those experiments. So what are we trying to learn and do the how might we in the crazy eights around what experiments we might be able to run? I mean, some of the generic frameworks for experiments are the kind of concierge type approach where it's like, you know, we did this also in early day experiences where somebody was actually crafting the experience for you. We also did a lot of things, you know, employees would go on experiences to vet the quality. There's the thing also called Wizard of Oz, where it looks like it's working, but it's actually someone behind the curtain doing it. So the founding story of Zappos is a great example of that, where he did what I wish I had done with my Etsy shop, where it's like, just take some quick photos, lap up a website. And what he was testing of whether or not people would buy shoes online. And so he actually went to the store and bought the shoes and sent them to people, which obviously doesn't scale, but was helping to test things out. And that's like an example of the Wizard of Oz. There's also things you can do from like a demand test or it's like the fundamental part of like what Kickstarter is and these things where it's like, here's an idea, would you buy it? Very similar to what Elon Musk did with the Tesla Model 3. 
where it was like, here's pictures. Will you give me a thousand dollar deposit for the interest in buying this car? Which said, yep, there's demand for this car. Let's pull up production timelines for it. I've also seen even like a great example is like doing a fake door test in your product where this is how back in the day Spotify tested for whether or not you'd be willing to pay for the service. If you remember early days, it was like, would you want to pay to get rid of ads? And it's not that you can do it today, but it's like, if you're interested, give me your email and we'll email, we'll let you know when this is available. So there's really creative ways. I know some of those are in product. I'm using some examples that are from like, you know, high level companies launching or industry examples that we're all aware of. But if you think of that concept of that big door test, this Wizard of Oz, this concierge, these demand tests. It might give you some ideas on testing out the desirability or the viability of some of these ideas in a very quick way. Fantastic answer. How do you help create a culture of experimenting more if there's hesitation to change current ways? Like the culture change questions are where it gets, it gets tough. And this with culture change, I say applying your product mindset as well. What is the problem with the current culture? What are the consequences of not doing it? So, you know, a lot of times what I ask teams to do is do a retrospective on a recent launch and what went well, what didn't. And, you know, experimentation, my guess is probably could have helped us avoid some of the things that didn't go well and use that as an example, right? Where we're grounding the suggestion, not just because it's good process hygiene or so-and-so companies doing it. So we have to, but more what's not working today and what are some ideas for how we might do this better? And then the second thing I think is what I try to focus on with organizations is setting my goals as learning, not necessarily output. When we're measured by output, we're incentivized to just do things. And they may not always be the best things or the right things or the most impactful things. And a question I always ask is, if I told you I launched 35 features last quarter, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Who knows? If I told you I launched one thing last quarter, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. We're measuring by output. 35 sounds better, but 35 might actually be bad. And so that's where I, I start to think about how do we structure our goals as a team, especially when we're new at this, around learning. And learning these things that are very risky, that are big unknowns that could potentially derail our product later on. And if I need to help explain the value of why that might add value, well, let's go through and do some retrospectives on past launches that didn't go as planned. Fantastic. Thank you. Did you have challenges in getting buy-in or showing value inside your product department in regards to experimentation and really getting the stakeholders to start doing them? Yes. I mean, that is has always been a challenge. I think for me at Airbnb, it's been a little bit different because it, it is a mindset that's set from the top. This experimentation is very much design thinking and it comes with this mantra of starting with the ideal outcome and work, working backwards. That is something that comes from all of our leadership. And so it's, it is ingrained in our culture, even when you look at our core values and, and things, you know, like Brian's talking now a lot about how one of the most important things to be a candidate at Airbnb is demonstrating curiosity. So there is some benefit of having that set as the established culture for the company, but there are still, you know, times where it's human nature to feel, you know, to focus on those things, to sometimes, you know, jump over and be like, feel more confident about things than we do. 
having confirmation bias and focus on more like kind of productive outputs as opposed to some of these more ambiguous activities that might not have like a concrete output that we can put on a roadmap in a neat little box with a date on it of when we're going to deliver something. And so, you know, there, there is always that mindset shift. Again, it, it might be a little bit easier if it's already ingrained in the culture, but it's still something to set up in terms of best practices. And a lot of times people are looking for, you know, tangible ways or frameworks to fall back on. So it's not so ambiguous. And so, you know, it's what I say is kind of also starting small and just introducing small things and, you know, making that migration slow. Cause some of these, it's not like big bang. It's, it usually isn't going to happen overnight. Okay. So time for the last one. So one of the things I hear a lot people talk about is how easy it becomes to keep experimenting, looking for a perfect result. So how do you approach deadlines on your experiments to focus on the highest leverage goals? Couple so that's an interesting framing of the question. Cause I would even back up to just the, the structure there of like, if we go into experimenting with an idea of the result that we're looking for, that's probably not experimenting. That's just confirmation of something we've already decided. And so in those cases, unless you're trying to change the decision and gather information to sway the decision, then that's different. But if we're going out with, with a result already in mind, then we're not really experimenting. And so when we think about experimenting, it's about a lot of things around like the beginner's mindset where we're open to learn, we're open to looking to see where different things will go. And so when we're thinking about these experiments, there is never a perfect result that comes out of it. And then when we think about how much information we need to collect, which translates into how much experimentation we need to do and what the level of fidelity of that experimentation is, it's also a question about risk. Can you undo this decision? This is the Amazon, the one-way and two-way doors, right? If I can go through the door and if I don't like what I see, I can go back, then we don't need as much information because I can undo it very easily without a lot of consequences. And so we want to structure as many decisions as we can and make them two-way doors where if we don't like what we see, we can come back. But if it is a one-way door decision, then we probably need more information. A lot of times there isn't always, there isn't even one right answer. There might be 10 right answers. And the question is, is which one are you going to pick based on the probability and the confidence and the insights that you have to date that are pushing you in one direction versus the other. And this is why, you know, one of the really important things as a product manager is this comfort with ambiguity is everything's ambiguous and being comfortable with that fact that there is no perfect result and there might be multiple answers to the question. Pauline, thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to this Product People podcast episode. To check the full conversation with video and to see the talks from other guests, head over to our YouTube page. The next episode will feature Roman Pichler, author of Strategize and How to Live in Product Management. Make sure to follow our show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss it. See you next time.